Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial at audibletrial.com slash other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You got to spell it out the traditional way. Go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audiobook on the house or get yourself an audiobook on the house. That implies free. You know what I mean? Audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. All right, right, everybody, here we go right. again. This is it. This is Other People. This is produced in a detached garage in a detached manner. This is recorded with a MacBook Pro. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. What's going on? Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. America. I have an international audience, though, so it could be uh, you could be anywhere in the world. I have fans all over this planet. Sarah Tomlinson is my guest today. She has a new memoir out. Uh, it's called Good Girl, and it's available now from Gallery Books. Sarah is a friend of mine. I know her socially here in Los Angeles. Great person. Great to have her here. We had a great talk. So I went to Chicago this past weekend. Got to meet my nephew. That was great. Everything's great. Uh, one thing that's not great is that my daughter broke her arm last week, the day before I left for Chicago. She tripped, she fell. She actually tripped and fell on Wednesday, I think is, I think it was. And she, she was crying a lot at school. This is what had happened at school. She, it was like kind of a random thing. She just tripped and fell and broke her arm. But she, uh, she got home from school. She had been crying and her arm was kind of hanging at her side and she was favoring it. And I'm looking at it. It doesn't look too swollen. I mean, there's like maybe potentially like a little swelling, but it wasn't anything that was super obvious. And then I'm asking her, I'm saying, does it hurt? And she's saying, yeah. And then I'm like, can you bend it? And then she's bending it. Can you move it? And she's moving it. And so I'm thinking, you know, kids can be dramatic. 
Maybe she was just uh, tired, wanted to pretend like she had an injury. I don't know. So I bathe her, put her to bed. She goes to bed a little bit early, like she was wiped out, which should have been assigned to us. And then in the morning she gets up and she's still favoring the arm. And I'm like, can you bend it? And I'm kind of feeling it. I'm like, does that hurt? Does that hurt? So I'm thinking, well, maybe she sprained it. (laughs) You know, we send her to school. My wife then goes and gets her because we have second thoughts. We take her to the doctor. She gets an x-ray. The kid broke her arm. Feel bad that we didn't uh, act on it sooner, but I didn't know. So she gets a cast. She gets a pink uh, cast. She's uh, despondent at first in the uh, doctor's office. You know, she's got this thing. My daughter was at a, uh, she was at a uh, friend's house and she got locked in the bathroom. This was many months ago. Not, you know, not that many months, but two or three months ago. And uh, she was over there playing and then she went inside to go to the bathroom and she shut the door and somehow the door locked behind her. And for, I want to say like five or 10 minutes, she was locked in the bathroom, which for a four-year-old is terrifying. Like she thought she was never getting out. (laughs) Emotionally, that's what she was going through, which breaks my heart to say, but that's what was happening. So, you know, she's a sensitive kid in the aftermath of this. She's terrified. Anytime doors uh, are closed, we can't, we can't shut her door to her bedroom when she's in there at night, we have to leave a crack. She doesn't want to go on elevators because the door's shut. Any door. It's a little obnoxious, but we're trying to let her have her uh, moment and process this. So uh, my wife takes her to the doctor, and she's got to get uh, her arm x-rayed. And to get an x-ray, my wife is pregnant, so she can't be uh, near an x-ray because of the pregnancy especially. So they have to close the door. So my daughter is uh, scared because she thinks she might have broken her arm and then she's got to get this x-ray and there's a big x-ray machine and then they had to shut the door so she's sobbing my wife is texting me about this as this is happening and then uh they get the x-ray then they got to put the cast on so that's another layer of trauma and then they've got the cast they're leaving the doctor's office and my uh, daughter throws a fit she doesn't want to get on the elevator because the doors are going to shut she's scared she's going to be trapped in the elevator So my wife takes her down the stairs. She's like, fine, my pregnant wife (laughs) uh, humors our our four-year-old. And she's like, okay, we'll take the stairs. We're fine. We'll take the stairs. Just forget it. We don't have to ride the elevator. Just stop crying. So they go into the stairwell and the door locks behind them. All the doors are locked. They're trapped in the stairwell. (laughs) And uh, my daughter goes into a panic. As you might imagine, she, uh, she loses it. (laughs) She's trapped in the stairwell. So my wife is texting me. We're trapped in the stairwell. We're locked in here. I'm like, where are you? Like what doctor? Because this was a different doctor. They had to go to an orthopedic. Where is this office? Like, do I have to come get you? You need to call the doctor, you know, call the doctor's office. So my wife had to call like the doctor's office and claim it was an emergency just to get through the, the voice uh, menu. It was a, a long process, but then somebody finally came and opened the door, which begs the question, why would you create a stairwell where the doors lock behind everybody and you're just trapped in the stairwell? Someone could die in there. What if you don't have your cell phone? 
Maybe my daughter's right. Never shut a door. So she broke her arm. She got home. I signed her cast. Pink cast. She got to go to school the next day. Then things started to turn. You know, she goes to school. She gets to sit in the teacher's lap. She gets to tell everybody about it. You know, all of her, all of her classmates are looking at the cast and asking her questions. And, you know, it's become kind of a thing. Kids are resilient. She bounced right back. I didn't bounce back. It's, t- it's tough to see your kid. You know, you don't want your kid to get hurt. So I leave the next morning at the crack of dawn to go to Chicago, get to meet my nephew, see my sisters, brother-in-law, get to be in Chicago. It was like the first really warm weather weekend of Chicago. So everyone was outside. Everyone in the entire city was outside. That's what it seemed like. Ate some food, walked around. Got to take a bike ride on the uh, lakefront. I always do that in Chicago. I like that. I like to ride a bike. I've told you this before. I like to ride a bike in a, in a city where I uh, that I don't know. Put me down in any city in the world. I'm going to try to find a bicycle. So I rode a bike around, and there was like a, a walk. I'm on the lakefront, and I get down, you know, towards the south side, and, uh, you know, just a little bit past like the heart of downtown. And there's a, a walk, like a charity walk for, uh, autism, all these people in like, you know, colored t-shirts, there were like teams, you know what I'm talking about? And, uh, I'm trying to ride my bike through them weaving. It's a lot of like autistic people. It was, uh, you know, I didn't, it's not like I did anything rude. It was just, it was, you know, it's a kind of a, a pedestrian slash bike path, but the the path was overwhelmed by pedestrians. So uh, cyclists like myself uh, were at a disadvantage. So I did that. It was a quick trip. I mean, it was like I was there Friday afternoon and I left Sunday morning. I don't like to be a house guest, even with my sister. If I ever come and stay with you, I'm there for like 36 hours. I will not stay longer than two nights in anyone's house. Like, I don't understand people who can do that. It's like, oh, I'm coming into town. I'll stay with you for a week. No, no one wants you there. I don't care what they say. I mean, maybe when I was in college, when I was younger, it didn't matter as much, but maybe, you know, maybe I, uh, maybe I need to be less uptight about it. I just feel like I'm imposing. I don't, I guess I don't mind certain people staying with me. But it, a lot of it comes down to real estate. You got to have the room. Where are we going to put people? My dream is to have a guest house. I want to have a house and then have a guest house. That way, everyone can be comfortable. The guest can just have their own space. We can have our own space. I'm not going to like, you know, unless I have to, I'm not staying with somebody for longer than two nights. My parents, uh, they were going to go to, uh, my parents had this big trip plan. My dad and his brother, Italian, the Listies, they were going to go back to Sicily for the first time ever. And, uh, the, I think the trip got postponed or canceled, but they were going to do it. And I was like, oh, you know, you're going to meet any of our ancestors and do all that. And my dad's like, no, they'll want to come stay with us. <laughs> 
this shit, you know, I can totally, I totally understand. You don't know what you're going to meet. Plus like the Europeans, they visit, man. Right? Don't they? Any of my European listeners, they travel for long stretches. And, you know, I think that, uh, as I'm evaluating myself in the moment here, I feel bad that I'm not, uh, more relaxed about this. It's my sister. I should feel comfortable staying with her for a while. She should be able to come here and stay. And listen, if I had a big giant house with multiple bedrooms and bathrooms, then fine. But I've got a three bedroom house and uh, I've got uh, another kid on the way. Every bedroom's going to be spoken for. So otherwise, then you're going to, what, be on the couch? Or you, I guess you can put the kids in the same room and then you're pulling, you know, it's just, it's a mess. You can come to my house. It's fine. I'm not saying you can't stay here. I'm just saying that like I personally, maybe I'm like, you know, projecting onto you. I personally don't like to be a house guest in people's houses. I feel like I'm inconveniencing them. I feel like they want me gone. So I came in on Friday so that like, you know, my, my sister and my brother-in-law, they were working. They wouldn't have to, uh, you know, wouldn't impede their work week too much. And then I left on Sunday and I left at midday. So I was off to the airport by 10 a.m. That way, like, they can have some of their Sunday because they got to go to work on Monday. They don't want me hanging around until dinner on Sunday. It's like looking at their watch, like, is he going to fucking leave? People need time to, you know, decompress. It was good to meet my nephew, though. Little baby. Smells good. I was sniffing his head. (laughs) You ever do that? You ever sniff a baby's head? I'll do that. Doesn't even have to be related to me. Just walk up and just sniff a baby's head. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is uh, Sarah Tomlinson. Her memoir is called Good Girl. And uh, we had a great talk. You're going to enjoy it, I think. And you're going to enjoy her book. It's called Good Girl. It's available from Gallery Books. Here she is, folks. This is Sarah Tomlinson. So you're, you get acupuncture? Mm-hmm. 40 minutes a week? Uh, it's about 40 minutes, yes. For stress? Yeah. About book? Well, now. But there's always something to be stressed Some- about. <laughs> You can always find something. So, I mean, I've had acupuncture before for like back pain, but acupuncture actually relieves stress. Mm -hmm. It just makes, but you know what? 
Maybe it, and I don't even know if it ever helped my back. My sister does it. She loves it. I know a lot of people, my wife does it with the right. pregnancy and everything. But, um, do you think it's possible that it's just like 40 minutes a week where you just relax and somebody just, uh, does stuff to you? Like yeah. it could be anything almost like a head scratch, you know, like, does it really, do you really believe in the needles and the chi? I do actually believe in the needles, but I also don't like massage. It stresses me out to get a massage. So I feel like this is my, what's comfortable for me is needles, not actually the hands. You don't hands want people, another, you no. don't want the hands. <laughs> what about a, what about like a, a female masseuse? Yeah. Even so, you it don't just wanna, stresses me out. No. Nope. Are you more stressed with a male masseuse? Yes. I've never had a massage from a male masseuse. Really? Mm-hmm. I've yeah. got daddy issues. You do? Yeah. We'll talk about those. <laughs> Really, you don't like that at all. Uh-uh. Are you ticklish? A little bit. You get violent when you get tickled. No, but I just people? no, but I just it would make me so uncomfortable. Right. Like in college, when people are like, "Let me give you a back rub," I was like, "No, thank you." I so, mean, no. Are you a hugger? Not really. I was raised. I hugged you when you got here. <laughs> was that weird That's, for you? No, because okay. I know you. Okay. I'm, that was not uh, uh, encroaching against my perimeter. <laughs> right. My wife is my my, my wife is like uh, Minnesota Scandinavian, not like not a hugger. Mm-hmm. Like not a hugging person. I'm Italian, Southern. Different I, culture. I hug everybody. Well, my family, my mom's family is English Presbyterian. Okay. And they're jokingly called God's frozen people. Oh, really? And then my stepfather's family is Scottish Presbyterian, also God's frozen people. So not big huggers. Okay. All right. Uh, so, but you go in, you get your, acupun- your, your uh, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. You come out feeling better? Yeah. What, where does she put the needles for stress? Uh, it depends, but sometimes, uh, like between your eyes, sometimes the top of your head, there's actually a pressure point inside your ear, like at the top of your ear. Some, it's a place actually near where I had it pierced when I was cool (laughs) (laughs) or questionably cool. Uh, and you can actually leave a little, uh, it's like a bead there all week and it will actually alleviate stress. It'll kind of press on that point. Really? Mm -hmm. You know, it's weird. I went to acupuncture. I'm I'm remembering something right now. I went to acupuncture when I was in college. And I had a back issue and I came out of the, uh, chiropractor's office and I was driving across town to a friend's house cause she was watching my dog and I got rear ended and I like, you know, the girl hit me and then we were exchanging information and it was over with. And then I went to this, you know, to my friend's house to get my dog and I was telling her about the accident and she's like, Oh my God, there's a needle in the back of your neck. <laughs> Like the dude did not take out the needle. Yeah. I'm dry. I got it rear-ended. I could have been severely injured. <laughs> Maybe that's why I have a bias against it. Understandable. <clears throat> so, okay. You have a book out. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a memoir. Yes. Memoir um, dealing with some difficult parts of your past, as memoirs tend to do. Yes. Tough to write. Or, or was it easy to write? Did it come gushing out of you? Or was it like a grueling, slow uh, process? As it is for me. (laughs) It was a grueling, fast process. Okay. I was able to write a first draft in nine months, which is fairly quick. Right. Um, But I did have a lot of anxiety about it. And actually, I work professionally as a ghostwriter. Right. And so I had ghostwritten several memoirs with celebrities. And a lot of those people had had real difficulty. You know, I had watched... Celebrities that had real personal (laughs) life struggles? Okay. (laughs) Most of the time, or at least some of the time, there is actually a real human being inside that celebrity shell. Right. At least the celebrities I've encountered. And it's your... Well, inside of all of them. Yes. You know, but it's your job to uncover that real human. It's true. And I have to say, I mean, writing a book is hard work. Sure. So not every celebrity is drawn to do it. Some celebrities... Celebrities make perfumes instead. If I could get paid to make a perfume instead of writing a book, I might do it. There's so much money in that. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I was having conversations with friends of mine. I, you know, I don't know if I was bagging on Jessica Alba, but my friend claims that I did. 
because I was just like, what is she doing? What right. is she, you know, she, her movie is like, what's there? There's yeah. nothing there. She's just really beautiful. Yeah. It was like something like that. And then I get a link one day and it's like, she's a billionaire. She is. She literally is. That honest company yeah. is, a, you know, she's a huge success. Yeah. So I think I was proven wrong or at least <laughs> to some extent, you know, I don't yes. know anything about her, but, um, you know, you, uh, you see these uh, celebrities like turning, that's why all these women, uh, like the Gwyneth Paltrow goop mm-hmm. and what is it? Blake Lively has one yes. now Reese with they're turning yes. into like brands. Yes. That's the new trend. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely is. Do guys do it too? Do they have personal lifestyle? Yeah, they do. I mean, not to that same extent because I think it's true that usually women are drawn to advice from other women right. or to make a huge stereotype to gay men. And so your average straight man is usually not your lifestyle expert. Yeah, I, I don't like, want Kanye West telling me what soap to wash my no. face with or whatever. No, okay. I didn't believe it. But so, so what I'm saying is that, you know, to actually write a book, even if you have someone help you do it is still grueling. So a lot of people aren't drawn to do it unless they actually do have something to say. Yeah, why would anyone exactly. who doesn't have to do this do exactly. this? Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I had gone through that and I had worked with men, you know, like big, strong, funny African-American men who, who are like... Who have you ghostwritten for? Well, I, I cannot say some of them because my name is not on the book, but the, the ones I've gotten credit for are Tila Tequila was the first book that I did. Oh my gosh. And then uh, Todd Bridges, who uh-huh. was Willis on Different Strokes. Oh yeah. And um, I mean, I can talk about that. You know, he talks in the book about having been molested by his male publicist when he was 15. And he was like a huge heartthrob at that time. He was in all these girls' magazines. He was doing these tours with like Scott Bayo and other heartthrobs right. across the country. Right. And he had this terrible trauma and he had to hide it because of where our culture was at at that time. It just wasn't something he could talk about publicly. So I had seen people like that really go through severe distress, recalling events from their past. As and you're interviewing them. As I was interviewing them right. and working on their book. And so I knew. I'm going to try to get that from you today. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the secret. Or you're going to make me cry, yes, is what you're exactly. saying. <laughs> We're going to have our moment. We'll see. We'll see. Can you Barbara Walters me? Right. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, and so I knew going into it, it was going to be difficult. And so I put some uh, preparations in place in my life to support me while I was doing it. Um, I had a great therapist. You know, I moved to Brooklyn for six months where I was closer to my family, to my like best friend of 20 years. When did you write this? Um, I sold the book in January of 2013 and I lived in Brooklyn from March until August and basically wrote the book while I was there. Oh, okay. And And that was intentional. Yeah. Like I want to be in Brooklyn to write this book. Yeah. I just had this feeling that it would be, I mean, I've heard that some people write books in New York, you know, it's kind of a a thing that maybe would be, yeah. yeah, just a few. So I thought, um, that it would be sort of like I had worked as a music journalist when I was younger and some artists do destination albums, you know, like PJ Harvey did her album, um, stories from the city songs from the sea, I believe it's called about New York city. There were some great albums where people had gone and lived in New York and written an album about it. And so I thought I'm going to go and immerse myself in New York, which is a different environment. And I'm going to give myself this experience for writing this memoir. And then in my day to day life, I also knew, you know, as I was saying, I had a therapist, um, I am a runner, so I knew I'm going to need to be running. I'm going to need to be taking care of myself. You you run for like mental health Mm is in addition to physical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It really helps me, especially the, um, 
like I guess you would say the dichotomy of like being at a desk all day working and then having even a half an hour where I'm running outside because I like to run you know in the street or not in the street but on the sidewalk yeah I like I like to have like high danger screaming just at the top of my lungs (laughs) I feel like it really mellows me out um so I knew that those were going to be things I could do to kind of support myself and when I had rough days um I knew that that was a part of the process and I kind of worked that into my timeline. I was like, and some, you're going to therapy. Yeah. You doing acupuncture at that point. I wasn't. Okay. Um, but I was, you know, I had a meditation practice. I was doing meditation. You still do that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. When, um, in the mornings. Okay. Yeah. I do that. Yeah. I like it. I do too. I talk about it. Yeah. I preach about it. Well, you and David Lynch, <laughs> no, I don't preach about it, but I do, you know, I'm always yeah. fascinated. You see, that helps you. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Are you, do you ever have, uh, when you're doing meditation, do you have, like deep serenity moments or is it mostly just your brain going crazy and you watching it? Mostly it's my brain going crazy and I feel the benefit later. Like my brain is less crazy later in the day if I meditate. Yes. Um, but you know, I wasn't raised with any spiritual belief. I was raised by sort of, you know, off the grid hippies in the late seventies, early eighties who had turned away from the religion they were raised with. And when I meditate, it's the closest I've come to, I guess, experiencing God or whatever you would say, like just this sort of deep peace, like this sense of being a part of something bigger than myself. And it doesn't last very long, right? but maybe to even feel that for 15 seconds is just incredible. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a Satori. Exactly. Right. And so, uh, we're going to get to your, uh, childhood. Yes. And, uh, we're going to talk a lot about it, but I got to finish with the uh, ghost writing. Yes. Tila tequila. Yes. Tell me about her. <laughs> well, she was my first job in L.A., really. You know, I had come out here to write. I was a music journalist at the time. Did not realize that the Los Angeles Times were going to be, go bankrupt right after I moved here. <laughs> um, they cut what they were paying freelancers, which hadn't been much to begin with. Great. So after having supported myself for about six years full-time as a journalist in Boston, I suddenly am, you know, 30 I'm in LA. I'm not getting enough work. I'm catering. I'm tutoring. I'm still not making enough money. I'm living in my friend's back. You're guest doing room. things that you're doing gerunds. I am. It's the LA way, I guess. That's catering, how I tutoring. Yes, that's, teaching. That's how I knew I was here, and right. and I was living in my friend Rebecca's back room, taking care of her dog. Like she was giving me dog a, sitting, literally a cut on the rent. I always say she's my patron because she believed in me and was like, "Yeah, come to LA. Like we'll help you out." Um, and, and, and then she's like, "Oh shit! I know there's not enough work. Now well, I got to put her up." I have to say she did just read my book and say she really enjoyed it, which meant so much to me because if your patron hates the work you do, that's a problem. Did you thank her in the acknowledgments? I did, of course. Well, that's yeah. what she, yeah. yeah. That's all she read. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> she flipped immediately to the acknowledgments. Great acknowledgement. <laughs> very well put. Yeah. Um, so I was really struggling and in a very uh, Los Angeles story, a friend of a friend was a ghostwriter and she started teaching meditation, uh-huh. transcendental meditation. Uh-huh. And so she decided she only wanted to write like health and wellness books at that point. And okay. she was up for the Tila Tequila book, not a health and wellness book specifically. <laughs> it's like, it's detrimental to your health. No, there's some good points in there. Okay. But, um, so she didn't want to do the book. And so it, she turned to her friend and said, do you want to do the book? And her friend said, no. And her friend turned to me and said, do you want to do the book? And I said, yeah, I I would love to. And so Tila was really the first person who took a chance on me in Los Angeles. And even a starting ghostwriter, I made a lot more. Yeah. What do you get paid to ghostwrite? Uh, starting, I would be about like $20,000. And then plus a chunk of the royalties. Mm -mm. No, no. You just get a flat fee. Yeah. And now, and then as you go, 
the higher the profile uh, person, the higher profile the person is, then the more money you might get? Or is it just a flat fee that you... Potentially, that would happen. It also really has to do with um, the books that you do. Like, you have to earn your chops and show that you can do it. So that book was a really fun, like, pop culture book. It was about dating. It was about, um, you know, she's bisexual, so here's some tips for dating men. Here's some tips for dating women. Um, She had really pulled herself up from nothing. You know, her family was, like, Vietnamese immigrants. She had come to L.A. They said, well, you're Asian, so you're not going to act, and you're too short to model, so see you later. And so she actually built her own business around her brand as we were talking about I mean these celebrities who brand themselves really well did you like her I did actually See, I feel like you're a really kind person and the thing too about it is that you get like an idea of people uh, you know in the media on the internet on television whatever it is and then you know you have that preconception or you have whatever two-dimensional idea of them uh, that you have and then if you're actually working with them uh, in a concentrated way over an extended period of time and you get to know them as a person I find that it's pretty hard to dislike mm-hmm. somebody in mm-hmm. like a, a total way. Mm-hmm. Even if they're kind of annoying, there's going to be something endearing about them. And if they're troubled, then hopefully you're going to have some compassion. Yeah, I think so. And I, I found that too when I was a critic. I mean, when I worked as a journalist, I was largely a music critic. And I, the really thing that irritated me was laziness. Like, especially because I had so many friends who are artists who really wanted to put an album out or really wanted to write a book. And if someone was just dialing it in and sort of using up some of the cultural bandwidth for nothing, I was like, come on, like you're just wasting all of our time. But anyone who's actually trying to figure out something about who they are or to say something, which she was, and she did a lot of writing. Um, She had a lot of ideas and it was funny. My, um, they were all horrible. No, they were great (laughs) ideas. And my editor for that book, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, embarrassing enough, but he is also Chuck Klosterman's editor. It was at an imprint of Simon and Schuster. And I had interviewed Chuck Klosterman before I had read his books. I had enjoyed them. And I thought, wow, like here I am working with a really smart editor and an established editor. And so this is only going to up my writing game. You know, we would have conversations. Well, I used seven exclamation points here because I wanted to use nine in the next paragraph. And I didn't want to like blow my load with the nine here. (laughs) I think you're blowing your load past one. Well, it's, it's an art, you know, really the multi exclamation point. (laughs) But so we had moments like that. We were kind of like, uh, you know, but then there were moments where, where she had said things about dating, about relationships, about vulnerability in relationships. And, you know, he's, uh, straight man who's married and he was like oh that's interesting like there were actually some points in the book that made him think about relationships in a different way and so i really learned a lot about um publishing through that experience because no matter whose book it is they're expensive to make they're time consuming and it's a big risk for the publisher so and and it's also i mean even if the person's having their book ghost written they are putting themselves out there it's always a personal it's always a personal experience and um there's never not at least a few drops of blood on the page yeah Exactly. And so that's what I was saying. You know, I love writing books. It's all I've ever wanted to do. And so if I meet someone, even if they don't look like what you'd think of as a typical author, but they say, I'm so excited to write a book. Thank you for helping me to do it. I'm like immediately on their side, you know? And as I said to her, you know, I said, a lot of people are going to hate you for this. A lot of people are going to doubt you can do it. So I was like, let's call them out from the beginning. So basically the first line of that book is like, yeah, I bet you didn't think I could write a book. Did you? So we're like, (laughs) I can't, I had to have a (laughs) ghost. But I was like, let's just say it, you know? And (laughs) this is Sarah Tomlinson. She's writing my book for me. She was, and I, my name was on it and she acknowledged me in interviews and, you know, but, but it was definitely, uh, uh, 
a partnership. I mean, I didn't just go in because I wouldn't know what to tell her to say. So, so what do you do? You go in, you have your digital voice recorder, mm-hmm. and you're just talking. Mm-hmm. How many hours do you log with a typical person to do a bo- uh, to do a, a book, a memoir? It depends. I mean, that was less time because it was uh, it was a lifestyle book. You know, when you're talking about um, writing someone's memoir, like Todd Bridges, you know, he started acting at four or five, had a huge career, had a major downfall. Um, Does he have enough money to live off of uh, different strokes? Does that kind of thing? I mean, I never know. Do these people, can they, like, does a a band that had, like, two hits in the 80s, are they still living on that? I don't believe so. I mean, I wouldn't be able to speak about his experience. I'm not sure. But I don't think that anyone was really that well taken care of at that time. That's bullshit. Yeah. I think... um, you know, uh, what's his name? Tori Spelling's dad. He probably, right. I mean, I think the people who produced the shows were the ones who gold floats. Yeah. yeah. Floats. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a star, one of the stars of the show, like throw him a few nickels mm-hmm. for every time it, you know, re airs on yeah. Nickelodeon or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 uh, you work with Todd Bridges. He's, I feel like he's got more of a, uh, sympathetic story. I mean, the abuse and everything. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, he had really gone off the rails, was a coke addict, was a drug dealer, was a pimp. Oh, wow. He was a pimp? He was a pimp. I didn't know that. He was running Girls in the Valley. Um, He was arrested for um, attempted murder, and Johnny Cochran was his lawyer. No shit. Long before that. I knew he was troubled. I didn't know he was a a pimp and was arrested for attempted murder. And so, and Todd was very sweet, and he would be like, well, so do you know about this stuff, Sarah? And I'd be like... No, Todd. <laughs> Do you know I tried to kill someone? <laughs> I'd be like, uh, I grew up in rural Maine and went to a liberal arts college. I don't know how to cook crack in the microwave, <laughs> but if you want to teach me, we'll we'll put it in the book for the readers. Damn. What's the what's the name of the book? Uh, that one's called Killing Willis. It's not called What You Talking About. Willis. No. Did that ever come up? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing also that's that's so beautiful about some of these stories is they're so human and. Like when Todd came out of rehab, he was still very recognizable because he was like, I guess, you know, late 20s, 30s. So people still recognized him and he had to get a job. And Uh so he was working as like a medical tech or, you know, like one of those sort of grunt jobs, like at a hospital or a, a, a clinic. And he had to take the bus because his license had been revoked and he didn't have enough money for a car anyhow. And he would sit on the bus bench in L.A. And people would drive by oh and be God. like, F you, Willis, you're taking the bus, Willis. And he would he would do it. You know, that was a part well, of his life. He, he didn't have a choice. Exactly. And but he, that's humiliating. Exactly. But he, he could tell those stories. And um, and that had been a part of his recovery in a way. You know, a part of his like reentry to the kind of crummy sides of, of real human life. You well, know, just break down the ego. Yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, my God. So when you when you meet people and you hear stories like that, you can't help but be moved by it. And you can't help but learn something. You it's know, hard to be. It's, yeah, it's hard to be like snarky. Yeah. Like you can crack Willis jokes if you're mm-hmm. but then you're sitting across from the guy in the valley and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, poor guy. And he also, I mean, we have, you know, a lot of stories in the news right now about police brutality. And he was um, harassed every day in Northridge by the cops. You know, LAPD obviously ended up getting into trouble, you know, not long after that with Rodney King. But, you know, what's the N like you doing driving a car like this? Because uh-huh. he had a Porsche. He got pulled over have every you, have day. Have you seen uh, Chris Rock? He tweets mm-hmm. every time he gets pulled over. He takes a photo, he takes a photo yeah. of, the, of the flashing lights and his, yeah. you know, and he, like a selfie. Yeah. And it's happened like multiple times. Because sure. he's driving through suburban New Jersey. He's a black right. guy in a, um, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. 
that's that's uh that's no fun yeah and again for me you know as an artist um i've always been writing novels i've always been writing screenplays i don't just want my characters to be white girls from maine so it's an incredible opportunity you know we're just talking about those two books right there we have a woman who's vietnamese american we have a guy who grew up in a pretty normal middle class african-american family but who went on to be a huge star. And so immediately you're getting access to all these different points of view, all these different voices, and you right. have to take on that voice as an artist. Um, you know, it's, it's not just reportage. It's really trying to figure out how does this person think? How do they express themselves? Helping them to figure out how to bridge gaps in their stories, you know, how to have um, epiphanies about what they've been through. Well, that's the thing. You're learning how to write a book. Yeah. And you're also learning character. Yeah. And you're learning how to assume the point of view of somebody who's not yourself mm -hmm. and all these things that are valuable when it comes time to write your own. Mm -hmm. So when you sat down for these six months in Brooklyn to write your mm -hmm. memoir, you had practiced. Yes. Over and over again. Yes. And you were able to do... Uh, like you knew what to expect mm -hmm. to a certain degree, but it is different when suddenly you're the focal point. It is different. And you're working from the inside out. Yeah. But I had, I had a lot of um, tools in place. And the nice thing about doing other people's books is you're so much less precious about it. When you get edited, you can see the point of the edit. Right. right. When someone says this narrative arc isn't working or you don't set this up well enough in the story, you go, oh, yeah, I can see why you're saying that. Let me go back and redo it. Right. So when I went to tell my own story, I knew a lot about just the basic aspects of structuring a book, of telling a story. And obviously, my story was much less dramatic than something like I just described. So you I was never you were never a pimp or <laughs> no. you were never running women in the valley. No, no. Just in my life as a ghostwriter. Uh, so I had to find quieter moments of drama, but I think it had given me a real gift in terms of thinking about, you know, telling a story over the course of 250 pages. And it made me less scared when there were days when emotionally I was scared by the material, I could fall back on the craft or I could fall back on the structure and just be like, okay, today I'm just going to focus on like getting through, you know, the next 10 pages of the book that I need to write. And that was really helpful. So, and then what about being a rock journalist? Mm -hmm. So you worked, I mean, you've covered how many different bands you've met everybody. Well, I was an indie rock journalist because I was the young person uh, on the staff or one of the young writers on the staff. Uh, well, I wasn't on the staff, but I was a regular contributor to the Boston Globe for many years. And so they would always send me out to cover the like Death Cab for Cutie or the uh -huh. Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> but yes, for uh, bands between 2003 and 2006 who sold, uh, you know, I don't know, 100,000 records, I probably met them. Who, who was impressive? Anybody that you remember, like it sticks in your mind or the, like, did, were you like, I mean, you're a young woman, you're single, I'm imagining at least some of the time covering rock bands. That's gotta be kind of fun, right? Uh, it was a very fun job in my twenties. Although as I talk about in the book, um, I did not have great boundaries. I did not have any boundaries. <laughs> so you're hooking up with these rock stars? Uh, I did have a couple of affairs, uh, and including one, which I talk about in the book with someone that I had, Who? um, I cannot say. I actually contacted him before the book was published, and uh, he was very gracious about it. You know, congratulated me on the book, but he said he didn't want. <laughs> it's like, do not use my name. Exactly. I have a, fa I have a family now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, he opted out of being identified. Although one of my old lovers, um, you know, did read the section about him and did agree to be named. I mean, he said, "Yeah, you can use my name." I was it like flattering? For him, I think it What's was. It? Who is he? Uh, his name's Anthony. And uh, he was a musician who uh, I knew in Boston, but then he got hired to replace Pete Doherty uh, in the Libertines when uh -huh. Pete was uh, ousted for his drug use. So he went on to England and played. In I didn't know the Libertines like re, re I thought Pete Doherty without Pete Doherty. 
Well, they did one more album, and uh, Anthony... Well, I guess Pete was on the second album as well. Anthony was the touring guitarist for that second tour, and then they went on to have another band called Dirty Pretty Things, okay. which was Carl Barat from the Libertines. Yeah, I had Anthony. that Libertines album that everybody got, mm-hmm. and it was great. Mm-hmm. And like Pete Doherty, from, like, for a second, mm-hmm. I was like, this guy's awesome. Yeah. And then it was just like, oh, this is just ugly and sad. Mm-hmm. Like, his teeth are falling out. Yeah. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Like, you want your rock stars to be sort of debaucherous and un... Mm-hmm unhinged you know like from a a theatrical standpoint Mm but to a certain point yeah i saw some pretty brutal stuff out there but um yeah so i mean that was you know that was someone also we had been in the same community in boston and so he was really proud of me for writing the book and you know the whole time i knew him which was in my mid-20s you know a few years ago now um i always wanted to write a book i was working on novels i was doing my own writing and so you know this was something that he saw come to fruition after many years and was really supportive of but it's funny you know I also wrote a um, TV pilot about my experience and it was, you know, a female music journalist and uh, we called it all access. Uh-huh. And my mentor at the time was Jill Soloway, who's gone on to have a lot of success with transparent. And oh, she, right. she would always say that when she pitched it to people, uh, you know, it's, it's the girl who has no boundaries. Well, come on. You got to do uh, you got to, now that she's, uh, she's red hot, she's got what transparent. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, are you going to re, uh, are you going to take that back out? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been so hard. Um, like, uh, Rock and roll TV shows are like this strange anomaly because it's just a no brainer because people love music so much. And a show like Nashville, which is about the country music scene, has done incredibly well. But for some reason, there's never really been a good rock show. And I know Mick Jagger is working with HBO right now to do a show. So everyone is sort of, I think, waiting to see you know, what will happen yeah, with that. I mean, this, I don't, I haven't seen Nashville. Do they do like actual live mm-hmm. musical? So, yeah. you ha- so you have the, the people who can perform. Yeah. You have to have that part. Of exactly. It. And then they also have to be able to act. Right. And then I think there's so much artifice around rock and roll in particular. Like I feel like country music people are sort of are who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. song and dance to it. Right. But there, there's not as much, uh, there's not as much of like the outfits and the persona and Mm-hmm. the cigarettes and the interviews and do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's maybe, maybe it's harder to get underneath and really depict it in a way that makes it interesting. Well, I, I think know. so too. And I mean, this is a huge generalization, but like, you know, I loved writing about music because I love music, but unfortunately a lot of the musicians I interviewed were really boring. Like they're guys and you're like, well, why did you start a band? And they're like to meet girls. And you're like, well, yes, but, but they, they're good at singing. They're good at playing their instrument and they're, and they're probably really smart, but like, you know, a lot of people, uh, they can't talk. Well, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't, they don't do well in an interview. Right. And it can be a fairly, um, small loop. I think that a lot of musicians are on where they're mostly inspired by other music. And I think it's much more interesting when you sometimes talk to a, a painter who, you know, travels for inspiration or who reads books for inspiration or who, but, but visual artists, a lot of times can't verbalize. That's true. Like, do you know what I'm saying? That's like true. and athletes, you know, there's a, I mean, if you watch any sports mm-hmm. media, it's like these people are so physical and they're brilliant yeah. in motion, but you yeah. ask them to describe what they do. And you know, the two, the two things are really at odds with right. one another. Like when what you do is really physical. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the visual arts is obviously more physical than writing. I think playing music is a mm-hmm. more physical activity. Um, sometimes that can cut against being able to, uh, you know, articulate it mm-hmm. for people. And it's, I find it painful to hear people, uh, talk about music a mm-hmm. lot of the time. 
like, oh, I love that track on, you know, on that album where they're jamming. And it's like, I just start to like roll my eyes. It's like, just play the song. Yeah. You just got to play the song. Yeah. It can't be talked about. Yeah. It's like when I was writing about music, I hated the word funky. Like it just makes right. my skin crawl. <laughs> but actually some things literally are funky. Like they pertain the quality of funk. Right. And so. Jamming. I don't like jamming. No, it's terrible. But some things are jamming or like, yeah. it's just, it, it is a jam. And my it's wife so. can't stand the word gig. It's yeah, kind like, of obnoxious tell. too. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, she worked for VH1 and MTV mm-hmm. for years. She's like all around all that stuff. Too. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you're doing music journalism. Yeah. Ever have any crazy experiences where you're with a, a, a rock star and he goes over the edge, or you're with him and you're dropping acid on the tour bus? <laughs> there is a um, experience that happened, which I talk about in the book about um, the the old lover of mine who I don't name in the book is someone that I had had a crush on as a teenager. I had listened to his music. What band was he in? I can't say. That's very (laughs) sneaky, though. That's very sneaky. Um, Was he famous? Just on an indie level. I mean, that's the ironic thing about this. You know, 90% of America would read my book and not know who it was anyhow. So, um, you know, it's only a certain small segment of the population that would actually care. But, um, you know, I came out, I had interviewed him over the phone. We had really hit it off. And then I went to see him play in Boston. And again, we, I met him backstage and there was a lot of chemistry uh, because he's super intelligent. So that was one thing that I was really drawn to that he was a talented musician, but he actually did read books and, you know, had traveled a lot and had some other things to say. And so he, um, you know, I told him I was coming to Los Angeles and he said, Oh, well you have my number. And so when I came he out, lived in Los Angeles. he did. And okay. when I, when I came that out, narrows it down. Ah, just to a few thousand <laughs> an indie, musicians, <laughs> an indie rock artist in Los Angeles. Yes. And so when I came out here, uh, I went to his house, uh, very early in the morning at about six in the morning. Uh, I Why happened, six in the morning. That was when he was awake and, and asked me if I wanted to hang out. He gets out. up at uh, an indie rock. He was still awake at six. In the morning. Still awake. So, okay. So there's a scene that I describe of, you know, I happened to be staying with a friend. Uh, was near- this in Laurel Canyon? Was it? <laughs> You're no. not going to get it out of me. <laughs> You're not going to get out of me. Um, so uh, he brought me to his house. He sent a, a young woman to come and pick me up and we walked up to his house and, uh, he sent a young woman mm-hmm, to pick you up. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. It was very rock and roll. Was she good? Was she good looking? She was cute. Uh-huh. She was cute. Very well put together, you know, very Los Angeles. And I was living in Boston at the time. So, you know, I didn't know that like you have to get a blowout if you're a cute girl. Like the blowouts didn't really exist in What's Boston. A blow? That's a hair, the hair. Yeah. Dryer. That's when a girl goes and gets like her hair blown out by a professional stylist and it looks really polished. Like the blow and, dry bar or whatever. Yeah, exactly. What is it called? Dry bar. The dry bar. Yeah, so like, the blow uh, dry bar. The blow dry bar. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a man. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't know. I mean, I was very naive. I was like 27 years old, but I was living in Boston where like not known for its style, you know, we'll just say that. Um, so I had this like crazy day of doing a lot of Coke with him and, you know, I think, uh, just talking, talking, actually. I mean, that's true. Listening to music, talking about books, um, talking about Coke, talking about Coke, not the most more? interesting. Can I have some more? Yeah. Is it done? Do you want to get some more? <laughs> not the most interesting topic in the world, <laughs> but to me, you know, and I, and I talk about that in the book, you know, whether or not my perception of the situation was accurate because I really felt like, Oh, I've achieved something, you know, here's this artist I've admired for 10 years. I'm at his house now. I'm doing coke with I'm him. I'm doing coke we're with gonna him. We're going to have sex. It's, this is right. it. I've arrived. Exactly. And, <laughs> and we're, but we were talking about books. We were talking about the book I was writing at the time. And 
I was a late bloomer. Like I had gone to college at 15, which would make you think I was precocious, but that was really just to get out of my high school because I was miserable. (laughs) And then I was really like spinning my wheels for a long time. And I think I lacked the confidence to like go to New York and make a name for myself or go to Los Angeles. You know, I lived in Portland, Oregon for a while. I lived in Boston for a while. I was drinking way too much. I just was like kind of a mess honestly because you said you were doing coke so i mean like that was something like if you're hanging around with rock stars and you're a rock journalist you're obviously going to be in close proximity to drugs Mm -hmm. but um did it ever get really messy for you with drugs for me it didn't for me it was really my drinking that was an issue um i had that like particular type a personality where like i liked to be the best at everything so during the day, I would sometimes hand in like three. I wish I had that. <laughs> well, it's kind of a nightmare. I mean, during the day, I would hand in sometimes like three articles. Like I had so many deadlines. I was just writing so much stuff. And then when I went out drinking, I wanted to be the one who could drink the most. Like right. I had this real pride in being the girl who could hang with the guys in the band, who could stay up till, you know, after the bars closed. There was always an after party. You were the girl who could hang with the guys. Yeah. And I loved that. And, you know, it's interesting when I sat down to write my book, I realized that a lot of it had to do with my longing for my dad because my dad was someone who had done acid 120 times who had wanted to be a beat poet who had a special shirt to dance to Jimi hendrix in. wait he, he did acid 120 times and he didn't wind up a beat poet <laughs> not like once you cross the century mark it's automatic like, no unfortunately no. not okay so i um i really uh elevated all of that stuff i really thought it was very glamorous and so because my dad was always elusive you know he had a incredibly um bad gambling problem he was living in boston just at the track every day driving a cab to get money to go there's to a the track, track in boston yeah it's called suffolk downs or okay. suffering downs suffering down. <laughs> Jesus. And so he, yeah let's let's talk about yeah. your childhood yeah so you're born in maine mm-hmm. freedom maine yes there's a town called Freedom. Yes, there is. Just for hippie children to be born in. Okay. And this was like, what kind of, this is like an intentional community? Well, what happened in the beginning was uh, my mom and dad met. Uh, she was working at a library in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. And my dad came in and, you know, talked talked her into going out with him, basically. They fell in love. and they At the co- library. <laughs> basically. Okay. They, they had a mutual friend. But um, they started dating. They ended up going up to New England and living in Maine. Um, you know, they were picking apples. My mom was working at a bookstore. My dad was like recycling newspapers for money. I mean, it was sort of that sort of early seventies right, thing. Right. And, um, my mom got pregnant. And so, With you? Mm-hmm. Okay. and so they decided that they were going to do a home birth. And, uh, my fa- dad found this farmhouse in freedom, Maine, where they were able to live there for free rent in exchange for him painting the exterior in the spring. So they kind of hunkered down for the winter and um, you were I, born at home. I was born at home with oh a midwife. God. Okay, with a midwife in the middle of nowhere in uh-huh. deep, deep winter. Was in there Maine. Any, any problems? No, luckily there weren't. I mean, my mom was uh, 25 at the time, so she was quite young and in good health, and um, it all went smoothly. Still, I've yeah. seen a childbirth. Yes, I don't. I mean, I did a show all about this about women having babies at home. Yeah. in cars and yeah. I've seen, I'm like, well, I want, a, I want 11 doctors <laughs> encircling. I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the book is very much about my dad and, and my relationship with him. But, but when you see my mom's story as well, I mean, I can't tell my dad's story without my mom's story. She was incredibly brave. Like they were unmarried. She was 25 years old, you know, in this farm in Maine with him. And she was just doing it. Like she really believed. You were born in, in what month? Uh, January, so late January, freezing, freezing cold. cold. Oh my God. And my mom really believed in, um, a lot of the, 
you know, ethos of the time. She believed in health food. She believed in environmentalism. What's you know, wrong she, with that? No, I think it's great. We, and, need, we need that to be the ethos of this time. Exactly. I mean, it's sort of sweet now I look back because um, the, the short version of the story is, is unfortunately about six months after I was born, my dad left my mom in this farmhouse, very far away from anyone else. He hitchhiked down to Boston. So she, what part of Maine is this? It's um, like central Maine, kind of by Rangeley Lake, okay. which is like a place where people camp. Like um, Maine is still one of the few states. I think like Maine, mm-hmm. Montana, Idaho, I guess the Dakotas, mm-hmm. but they're not as, I mean, they're somewhat scenic, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, if you want to go off the grid and live yeah. like a nature existence, yeah. like that's, I mean, you can go to Maine and get yeah. lost. Yeah, you can. Still. You, still. Still. I mean, it's, um, it's sort of like, it's interesting because it is the um, northernmost uh, tip of the Appalachian Trail. And there are I've some... Hiked, s- I've hiked the Appalachian yeah. Trail. So you know, and there As are... I've talked about on this show before. They're like, stop with the Appalachian Trail, yes. Brad. Yeah, We've no, heard it. I know. I've gotten but multiple complaints. There are kind of some similarities to Appalachia in the South. I mean, that level of poverty, that right. level of independence, that level of... Um, but it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. In the summer. In the summer. And it's pretty brutal in the winter. But my dad ended up... Um, he was into Est, which was, uh-huh. you know... A, I did uh, I did the uh, Landmark Forum okay. for a weekend. So similar, yeah. One of the craziest weekends of my life i was doing book research yeah. or so i thought at the right. time and uh i was in los angeles and there was like in some weird like office park mm-hmm. and it was so transparently bullshit right and the guy leading the thing was such a charlatan mm-hmm. like just like i mean the word reptilian mm-hmm. like could not fit this guy mm-hmm. better and i'm looking around and people in the room are going for it yeah and i felt uh and they keep you in like a you know a metal folding chair 12 hours a day. Right. That's part of the formula. And I think at SD, you don't, you're not allowed to use the bathroom. I mean, right. It's all right. about, it's all about like wearing you down yeah. and like making you vulnerable. Right. But I just remember I met, I left early on the third day mm. and people were signing up and bringing their friends in. And mm. I was like, oh, this is fucking crazy. Right. Well, and the thing that's really bittersweet about it for me is, you know, my dad was only, he was 30 at the time, but he was a dad. They hadn't planned me. You know, I'm, I come along. He's a dad. He suddenly got a daughter. He doesn't have a job. He had never really been parented himself. I mean, he was taken from his mom when he was three years old. She was put in prison for child neglect because she was such a bad alcoholic. He was raised in foster care till he was 10. You know, was kicked out of school in ninth grade. You know, just had this really disastrous childhood and adolescence. And suddenly he's a parent and he cannot handle it. He's right. terrified. So he thinks Est is going to be the thing that gives him the skills he needs to be a dad. Right. It's, it's again, it's bittersweet for me because I can I can have compassion for well, that young man. Like at you least, yeah, he's trying. He's trying. So he goes down to Boston. Plus to, there wasn't all the press. About, I mean, right. it had, was new then. Right. What is it? Werner, Werner Erhard or whatever? I, can't, I haven't done that much research. But I mean, the ironic thing is that this is his way of being a good dad is to leave his girlfriend and baby with no car in rural Maine <laughs> and to hitchhike down to a seminar oh. instead of just like making them dinner or it's something. Sweet, right. Though. It is sweet. But unfortunately, while he was in Boston, he had never really gambled before, but he had this compulsion to go to the track. And for my dad, gambling was really like going to the bar. I mean, it was his way of checking out. He got that same sort of blankness or that same the sort dopamine. of... Exactly. So he won $100 at the track and he lost $100 at the track. And he hitchhiked home and he told my mom. And of course, $100 was a lot of money for well, a new Especially family. back then. Yeah. And um, she was really nervous about that, but didn't quite know what was coming. So he broke even. Yeah. In theory. They all, in theory. People who, this is right. the thing about people who play poker, people right. who gamble in any way. They never tell you about their losses. Right. It's always like if they win, you hear about it. You hear about it. But yeah. it's never like I lost $15,000 right. in a night, you know, right. and like 
cash my paycheck to do it. I mean, like never you, you don't you ever get those stories. Exactly. And that, and that was sort of kind of the heartbreaking, um, part of this book was that I went back and excavated some of that history, which really had never been talked is about. Is your in my dad family. still with us? He is still with us. Did and you so talk to him for the book? I did. I did actually. Was he open to it? He was. It, um, this will tell you a lot about my dad. Uh, when I got the book deal, um, I called my dad and I said, dad, I, I sold a book finally. And you know, he's always known about me wanting to be a writer. And, and I said, it's a book about you and I, it's, it's about our relationship. And he said, I always knew we'd write a book together someday. Oh. And I was like, well, it's not technically your book. It's my book. Hey, can I have your advance money? I'm going to the track. Well, that, that's a story for later, but um, that did kind of happen. But so oh. basically my, my mom and dad stayed together for the first two years, but they were living in Boston at that point. My dad's gambling had gotten so bad that my mom was like, How bad? like all the money went to the track. And then he was working extra shifts as a taxi driver to make more money to go to the track. So what's the, cause there's a, I was re- like l- listening to an interview or mm-hmm. watching uh, Norm Macdonald on TV, mm-hmm. the, you know, celebrity mm-hmm. yeah. lost all his money mm-hmm. gambling, mm-hmm. almost like compulsively yeah. wanting to lose his yeah. ass. They're like, what's the psychology of people? Is it the same thing as somebody who's addicted to substance or is it a self-esteem thing? Like what are people doing who are risking everything like that? And, and well, I think it's, I can't speak to how it is similar or different from substances, although I do know my dad gets that that sort of same calm. Well, so both from are doing addictive. It. Right. But the thing that is really, again, bittersweet for me about it is we have a man here whose two obsessions or compulsions, you might say, are gambling and self-help. And so he's consistently <laughs> trying to build himself up. He's trying to build up his self-esteem. My whole childhood, he's doing affirmations. Uh-huh. He's doing everything in his power. He got into rebirthing. He got into John. What's rebirthing? Rebirthing is this idea that if you have a traumatic birth experience, like literally the experience of coming out the birth canal, that that can create emotional problems. It's and traumatic so, for everyone. I know. It's <laughs> in, inherently a traumatic <laughs> thing. Yeah. So, but, but, so he's doing everything he can to try to be a more secure, happier person. He's working and yet, at it. He fundamentally believes he's a loser, I think. And he goes to the track and loses again and again and again. He loses my mom. She leaves him. She takes me to Maine. During this time, they had some friends who found with my mom, a hundred acres of land in Maine. My, they decide we're going to go back to the land, yes. which was happening in the seventies. My mom says, I really want to go. She had just gotten a very small inheritance, but it was enough to buy 10 acres of land out of this hundred acre parcel. My dad is terrified. He won't do it. He's like, I don't know how to build a house. I can't do that. So my mom goes, she gets back together with her boyfriend from college who became my stepdad. They move he up. He signed to up for the homesteading. He did. He did. Wow. And he's still there with my mom. Like They're still together. Thirty years later. Yeah. Bless him. I know exactly. And he took me on this like on feral the- little girl <laughs> who comes with the deal. You know? You're like, you're like, <laughs> what? Yeah. What are you? You're hunting with a spear. <laughs> Basically. So we we it actually was a really idyllic childhood in many ways. My um, this was in like 1978. By late 1979, we had a 740 square foot house that my stepdad had essentially built. Um, yeah, had, wait, wait, where are you living when the first winter hits? Uh, we were in an apartment in Augusta, Maine, which was about an okay. hour from okay. so the land had, that they you, bought. You had heat. We did. Although, I mean, when we went to the land... Um, when we went to the when land. When we went back to the <laughs> land. Uh, and that's what we always called it when I was growing up was the land. Like, oh, this is the land or th- these, this is my friend from the land because there were other families who built with us. Um, on the land. On the land. Is the land still there? It is. It is. So What's it? It's called Freedom, Maine. Uh, th- this is actually in Midcoast, Maine. So this is um, Freedom, Maine was inland, and this is more uh, mid, like coastal Maine. 
um, about an hour north of Portland on the coast. That's a good spot. Yeah, especially in the summer. Beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so you know, now I look back and it's sort of like you were joking, like let's have more of this in our life today. It seems really sweet that they were like thought culture was bad and they had to get away from it. You know, in the late seventies. I still feel like that. I know, but so we had organic garden. We did all of our own firewood. It was a passive solar house, so we were using very little. Um, firewood, you know, it was as, as efficient as it could be energy wise. Uh, my mom baked all our bread. We didn't eat any processed flour, no sugar. You know, it was like carob and honey and all the, and you're like, get me the fuck out of here. Well, I was, I was because sadly (laughs) go to New York and eat Velveeta. That's exactly true. My dad's mom was this former model who had become this horrible alcoholic and lost her kids. And then later in life was a, um, nurse who lived with elderly rich people. You know, she was an in, in house nurse for people and so she would come up once a summer and take me to like the beach for a week because she felt guilty that my dad wasn't seeing me and she wore Estee Lauder makeup like bright bright red lipstick and she smoked cigarettes and read the paper and that was it that was like what we would do for a week and uh, she would take me shopping and you're like she's so sophisticated I loved her (laughs) I loved her and the same thing with my dad and that was sort of how we got into talking about this like I really idealized him I really thought if his life is keeping him away from me it's got to be great he lives in Boston. He drives a cab. That's so cool. And he would come to visit me, which he probably only did about eight times in my whole uh. childhood between when I was two and when I was 15. And um, But he would come in his cab because he didn't have another car. And so I would sit in the back and like push pennies through the slot. And he just was like larger than life. And so I think as I grew up and I realized he wasn't ever coming for me, really, I went to him as I could through culture. He loved Jack Kerouac. So I read all of Jack Kerouac. Uh-huh. You know, he loved Wilhelm Reich, who's this psychoanalyst who had um, built these orgone accumulators, which became really popular oh, with, right. with yeah. uh, William Burroughs. Right. Uh, he got me into all this stuff, isolation tanks. And so <laughs> the, the further out it was, the more I loved it. And because I was becoming very You're like in the isolation tank going, Dad? Yeah. Exactly. Hello? Can you hear me? <laughs> and and also, he was very pro-drug when he was younger. And so... Was he giving you drugs? He did not give me drugs. At okay. that point, he had decided that um, he had achieved enlightenment through LSD, but that was cheap or fake enlightenment, and he wanted to achieve it through meditation. So he has spent basically, um, you know, the past 39 years of his life trying to achieve enlightenment through meditation. Well, you know, that's interesting that you say that because I talk about uh, like hallucinogens on this show all mm-hmm. the time, like maybe too much, mm-hmm. but I, they fascinate me because mm-hmm. um, they can be these really powerful agents. Mm-hmm. You can have m- like massively powerful mm-hmm. uh, insights and experiences while on these things. But, uh, you know, my experience with it anyway is that those um, insights are fleeting. Mm-hmm. You know, the wisdom that you get from it is mm-hmm. fleeting. Like you, you, you come down off the stuff and you're like, what the fuck was that? Mm-hmm. But when it was happening, it was like somehow mm-hmm. a lot more clear. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that totally discredits, uh, you know, uh, psilocybin or mm-hmm. LSD or whatever. It mm-hmm. doesn't make those things like uh, it doesn't take away all of their value. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that there's no shortcut. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? People mm-hmm. who take lots and lots of uh, hallucinogens, hoping that it's going to somehow wake them up or enli- mm-hmm. you know pr- deliver them enlightenment. Mm-hmm. It's fool's gold. Mm-hmm. You have to do the work. Yeah. Or I guess like be born with like a special gift mm-hmm. or 
you know, there are these stories of people who have like this really rapid onset enlightenment. Mm. I don't know how much I believe it, mm. but maybe, I mean, mm. why not? Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem to happen often. So maybe it's an anomaly. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's also something I talk about in the book is like, I had, had this trauma of my dad not being there. And then the trauma of him saying, I'm going to come see you this weekend. Oh, I can't come this weekend, but I'll be there next weekend. Oh, I can't next weekend, but next month. What's he doing? He's going to the track? Going to the track, but never telling me that. He only tells us he went to the track if he won, as you said. Yeah. So, you know, I had this deep trauma, but it didn't look like trauma. It wasn't him abusing me. It wasn't him burning me with cigarettes. And so no one really understood it as trauma at that time. Little girls need their dads. They do. Kids, and, little boys need their dads. Yeah. You know, the, the children need their parents. Yeah. And unfortunately, my mom didn't know at that time that it would have been helpful for me to understand a little bit about gambling. I don't think she could have explained it to me in full, but I think even at a young age, I could have understood that there was something that was keeping him away because right. I thought it was me. And so I became like... You personally, you were like, he's staying yeah. away because of something yeah. I did. And I literally thought if I can be a little more charming, if I can be a little more sweet, if I can never get angry at him, if I can never have any emotional reaction to him that's upsetting, then maybe he'll stay. That's the saddest thing I've it's ever heard. really, really sad. Yeah. And so then obviously that didn't work. So I'm like, I'm going to be wild. You know, I'm going to be as cool as he ever was. You know, I'm going to take LSD. I'm going to. You took LSD? Mm -hmm. When? Uh, On the land? Not. I think a friend gave it to me when I was 13 was the first time. Jesus. And uh, then I went away to college when I was 15 and I was like drinking and smoking cigarettes and being wild. How did you adjust on a college campus at age 15? Did, uh, did you look older than your age? I or did. Did you, a, did you try to? I did a little bit, but it's a special program called Simon's Rock, which is a part of Bard College. And it's actually designed for people who aren't doing well in high school. So you're allowed to drop out after your sophomore year of high school and start college. So I was a little young for my class, you know, at 15. But uh, most of my classmates were 16 or 17 their okay. freshman year. Okay, so, so you want because I mean, there's a big difference between 15 and 18. Yes, like a lot of you know. Absolutely. I remember looking up at seniors and being like, they look like adults. Yeah, you know, and we definitely were not adults. No. Um, so I, you know, I went a little bit wild, and it was interesting. You know, as as we get to sort of the second half of the book, and I'm realizing that these things aren't working for me anymore, like the heavy drinking and and some of the avoidance mechanisms I was doing, I was looking for an answer and I, I wanted to be an alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic. I don't know why genetically I should be. It skipped you. It just did. And I realized I wasn't drinking because I was an alcoholic. I was drinking because I was bored. I was drinking because I was in pain. I was drinking. I think, I think a lot of it too is like social anxiety mm -hmm. and especially like social slash sexual anxiety. Yeah. Like from a guy's point of view, uh, I always say like I drank so I could have courage to talk to girls. Yeah. That was part of it. I yeah. mean, it was a big part of it. Sure. You know, and that's how you, and you sort of learn that in high school and then it just kind of carries over because right. in high school you're really confused. I right. Mean, in college, you should be getting the, a clue. Right. You kind of do, but. But it's hard. I was slow. It's, well, and it's scary, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really scary to it's, be it, rejected. It, well, yeah, it is. And it's easier if everyone's just a little uh, fucked up to, right. you know, talk and be silly and then right. it's like, oh my God. Who are you? Yeah. You know, and why are we in bed together? <laughs> <laughs> and I do think, I mean, I had kind of, I, I've heard this said before that sometimes artists have an extended adolescence, not only because they're sort of in their exploration stage for longer, but also because they're poor. And I do think that like having... I'm still in mine. <laughs> yeah, well, Look it's... at me. I'm in my fucking garage. <laughs> this is a nice garage. I mean, you got a garage. <laughs> right. 
There's no car in here. No. So you ride ride just, the bike. Just boxes of uh, old shit. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I stayed in a delayed adolescence or an extended adolescence for two reasons. One, because I was an artist. And so all of my resources went into trying to be a writer. I had nothing. My friends were getting married. They were buying houses. I certainly wasn't going to do that. You knew you were going to be a writer from? Age 16. That was okay. when I, I took my first class at Simon's Rock. Because for... your dad loved the beats and you were Yeah, and my Carol. mom was a librarian. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You um, had it in your blood. I think also, you know... I never really got to tell my story to my dad. I had a lot to say, and I think it was really meaningful for me. Even though I didn't know at that age I was going to write my own story someday, I had a lot to say. I hadn't been given the chance to talk about it. I'm so glad. And he read it. He has read it, yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. He's still with us. Yeah. You got this moment. Yeah. Don't you feel lucky for that? Oh, it's incredibly lucky. Because too often these kinds of books are written like after the parent is Mm -hmm. is gone, and it's Mm -hmm. like, I wish he would have been around. Mm -hmm. But you got to say your piece. Yeah. He got to read it. Yeah. Uh, I imagine it wasn't entirely pleasant for him. Did he tell? Was he mad at all? No, he wasn't mad. It was hard. I mean, he has a lot of shame around his behavior. Um, but you know, he did say to me, uh, "I think it's really well written, and I think you've grown a lot as an artist." He had seen some of my earlier writing, and he felt like this was less angry and sort of more nuanced. <laughs> and um, he he said it reminded him of Kerouac in that it had a very distinct voice that's very conversational where you kind of want to go on the adventure with the person. And I think one of the things he always loved about Kerouac was his humanity. I mean, it was sort of Kerouac's undoing as a person. But, and also, yeah, like, like Jack was going for it, mm-hmm. like especially at his best. Mm-hmm. And I know people have their problems with him but like and, and, and with the beats. Mm-hmm. But I think the beats at their best are awesome. Yeah. And so that was a huge thing for my dad to say to me. And then he did say to me, um, do you think I'm mentally ill? Because that's something I sort of dance around in the book. I can't diagnose him, but there, there is definitely a possibility there. And I said, well, that's not my place to diagnose you. And then he said, um, do you think I'm enlightened? And I said, I think you're having an enlightened reaction to this book. And um, he's been meditating for 40 years, mm-hmm. like practicing Buddhist or is just like um, a meditator. He has his own <laughs> version. Um, he has been influenced by this guy, John Lilly, who did build the first isolation tank. Um, my dad sometimes has gone through stages where he would meditate with a snorkel and do like really deep breathing. Um, All right. So I don't think he has like one. Wait, per- underwater? Just wearing just a snorkel? in bed. Yeah, <laughs> laying down. Like your dad. I know. He's cool. That's the thing a lot of people have said, which is, is um, exciting that he's a great character. I mean, that he's a fun person to spend a book with because you start to feel a little bit like a chump, I guess, when you kind of look at your life and you're like, wow, I spent years obsessed with this person, you know, and just nothing else would do. I had a really pretty nice stepdad who was like there, like making the lentil soup with my mom, you know, like on the land, on the land. And I didn't want him. I just didn't want him. I wanted my dad, you know? And so it is gratifying to have people spend time with him in the book and and kind of get it in a way because he is an incredible conversationalist. You know, he's very well read. Driven cabs. He's talking to people all day long. Yeah. He just, he has these great stories and it's that kind of old school masculinity that you did see a little bit with Kerouac um, where there's sort of this obsession with very male pursuits like the track or the taxi driving. Well, the Hemingway thing. Yeah. And drinking but, but, and the, like that whole literary. But then there also is the sort of meditation and that my dad's very much into cinema, into art. You know, um, there's a part of the book where we finally start building a relationship. Uh, when I'm 25, I was living in Boston for grad school and he was still in Boston and we hadn't seen each other in nine months of me living there. At that point, we hadn't seen each other in 10 years altogether, but there had been nine months. Where 10 we, years. We were in the same city. And, uh, I Wait, said, you didn't see him for 10 years mm-hmm. while you were living in the same city? No. That that was um, 
when I was 15, I went away to Simon's Rock and my first month of school, I went into Boston for a concert and I was like, I'm going to call my dad and tell him to meet me at the concert. Cause I'm like the only teenager who actually wants to hang out with their dad. Like everyone else is like, get me away from here. And my dad and I had a big fight about skinhead culture outside of this club when you I was going to see skinheads. No, no, oh, oh. there'd happened to be some skinheads standing there. I was going to see this old punk band called seven seconds who are kind of this like sweet, they're actually a, a positively like pro, you know, community punk band. Okay. But, um, my dad saw some skinheads and was like, I didn't know you hung out with skinheads. And I was like, well, there's some good skinheads. Like I have friends who are sharp. <laughs> they just like short hair. Yeah. I know. He was, he was basically trying to get on top of the situation. And that was my first point of being like, no, like, well, you don't get to weigh in if you've been gone for a decade. Right. right? And you I think suddenly get to like critique my life. Yeah. And I think the the problem with it was that I didn't know at the time he was so insecure. And so he basically said to me, well, if you don't want me here, I'm going to go. And I said, okay. And he walked away and I was, I was 15, did not see him again for 10 years. And we did exchange a few letters during that time, but didn't come to my college graduation. You know, as I say, when I was in college, there was a shooting, you know, Oh, right. And I had the big uh, school shooting. Yeah. And and this was what year? 92. So this is like pre-school shooting. Yeah. This is like the the first school shooting that like, not the first, but it's one of the. Essentially, it was definitely the first to get like, um, mass media coverage. Uh, this is at Simon's Rock. It was at Simon's Rock. What happened? Um, one of my classmates named Wayne Lowe, who was 18, um, had been disgruntled and everyone knew that, you know, we were at this very, um, just delightful liberal arts college where people were coming out for the first time. They were dyeing their hair. They were being anarchists. They were being vegans. You know, it was all the stuff that you'd wanted to do in high school, but couldn't cause you're getting the tar beat out of you <laughs> by the bullies, you know? And so we're like, great. And there's this one, super conservative he was actually a skinhead kid um of korean american descent and he starts saying in class oh people with aids should be quarantined and bombed he starts being really aggressive he's bodybuilding and no one liked him everyone's like we don't (laughs) we don't want this here we've been bullied all of us in our own you know separate high schools we're finally in paradise we're not going to tolerate it and so he was really ostracized from the community which i have a lot of guilt about in retrospect but uh, because of a loophole in the gun law at that time, he was able to take a cab from campus into the nearest town or the nearest big town. And he had a Montana driver's license. And at that point, the gun laws of your home state applied in Massachusetts. Montana had very lax gun laws. So he walked out with an SKS 47, which is a Chinese semi-automatic assault rifle. Um, he had received some ammunition in the mail that day. The school knew it was ammunition because it was from a gun company. Uh, they weren't clear on the policy. They were afraid that intercepting it would be, um, you know, not uh, giving him his proper rights. So they delivered the ammunition to his room. Someone like uh, <laughs> one of the deans or one of the directors of the dorm, you know, went in to talk to him about it. And he said, oh, it's just a gift from my dad. It's it's just an ammunition clip. See, and he showed it to them. And uh, so at that point, then he had the gun. He had the ammunition. One of his friends called in a anonymous tip and said, you know, Wayne has a gun and he's threatened the resident directors of his dorm, which was also the dorm where I lived. And they happened to be a biracial couple. And it was known that he was very inflammatory around issues of race and, oh, and sexuality. So the school um, unwisely uh, opted to evacuate those adults and their family and leave him alone in his room during which time all the adults were gone because they were helping this couple 
evacuate. Like they took the threat seriously enough to get right. this couple to safety just in case, but left Wayne in his room with the gun. And so he, uh, luckily it was a, it was like a, a campus that was, um, like out in the woods. So there was a lot of space between the different buildings. It wasn't like being in a high school where right, right, you could just right. run down a hallway, but, um, he shot the woman in the guard shack so that she couldn't call the police and nearly killed her. Um, he shot a professor who was driving off campus in his car and killed him. Uh, Nakunin Sayas, he was 37. Uh, my friend Galen Gibson, who was 18, was coming out of the library because he'd heard there was a car crash and he wanted to go help. And he shot Galen and killed him. Uh, he ran up through campus, uh, shot three more students, injuring them was you know firing on people but his gun kept jamming so that was like our good grace was he had about 300 rounds of ammunition which would have been enough to kill basically everyone on campus if he you know had the time we were about like five to eight minutes from the nearest Where were town you? i was in my dorm room did you know this was happening i could hear the shots but it was so strange you know we're in the berkshires which is like where norman rockwell painted you know right. it's where alice's restaurant was it was this like idyllic community it's December, December 14th. Everyone's studying for finals. It's like, I don't know, nine or 10 o'clock at night. So it's quiet. You're like, what is that fireworks? Like, right. what's that out there? And again, we didn't have a precedent for it. You know, I think now if someone heard gunshots, they would think Columbine, you know, they would think um, Arizona State. And we just didn't. We were very naive culturally at that point. Uh, and we were also in paradise. Yeah. You know, we thought we had gotten ourselves. Who's going to think that? I mean, I get, you know, you have a skinhead with a gun in his yeah. room. I mean, maybe if you knew that you would have yeah. some clue, but I mean, up until then, you know, what happened to this kid? Uh, well, because his gun kept jamming, he, uh, went up to the, um, like we had a dining hall that had like a snack bar and student center below it. And, um, there was another student there and he said, um, you know, call the cops. Like he had the gun, but he didn't turn it on the kid. He just basically was surrendering at that point. And I actually, my dorm looked out, um, on the place where he was and it was all glass up there so i couldn't see that it was wayne but i could see him in there and then the cops arrived on campus and they started like climbing the hill up to the dining hall like with their guns drawn so i was able to see him get taken into police custody and, and where is he in jail now he is he got uh life in jail with no chance of parole Ugh. and um you know at that point we had um it was before cell phones but we had campus phone and so some of my friends were in the library studying and they had seen galen die so at that point um and some people had seen wayne you know run by with the gun or had had him put the gun on them even though it had jammed uh so people rumors were starting to fly you know oh i heard galen was shot i heard galen died um and so we i was a resident assistant at that time so i was sort of one of the I wasn't a dorm parent because I was 17 or 16, but I was... You are like an elder statesman. Exactly. So I was in charge of helping the kids to um, just stay calm. And uh, we got called into the dining hall for a meeting with the police and with the dean of the school. And they told us, you know, uh, that it had been Wayne and that Galen had died and Nakunyan had died. And uh, they sent us home the next day. We had the, you know, finals were canceled, basically. God, mm. that's terrible. So mm. this kind of this kind of thing happens. This kid gets... It's a kid who did this. Mm -hmm. He gets life in prison mm -hmm. with no possibility of parole. And what I'm thinking to myself is I'm thinking about uh, the Boston Marathon bomber, mm -hmm. the kid. Mm -hmm. He's so young. Mm -hmm. He looks like any kid. He's a good-looking guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and he gets uh, the death penalty mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I'm anti-death penalty. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel strongly about that. We mm -hmm. can't become them. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's something sickening about it. Mm -hmm. But when you have been in close proximity to this kind of mm -hmm. thing and you've lost a friend mm -hmm. 
in a violent way, in a you mm-hmm. know, basically in an act of terror, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, you know, just mass murder. Uh, is there a part of you that's so angry about it that you don't care if he lives or dies? I mean, how do you feel about it? I'm always because I'm always curious. Like it's easy for me to say, mm-hmm. but when somebody has actually lost somebody mm-hmm. in, and has been involved in one of these things, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like maybe they would um, have better wisdom about it or something. Yeah. I mean, I, at that time at 16, you know, having just lost my friend and having lost my sense of safety because paradise was shattered, the adults had not kept us safe. I mean, unfortunately they made a series of really appallingly bad decisions that day. Um, and I know that they obviously were devastated, you know, I mean, institutionally and personally, those were real adults who had thought they were keeping us safe, you know, but that was horrible to experience at that age. You know, it took me a long time to get over that if I even have. Like PTSD you know. or... Yeah, literally. And sure. just that idea that like, you're not safe, which I suppose, you know, many other cultures live like that all of the time. Right. You know, that is their reality. Um, I had had the luxury of living in America till then. And, you know, that's such a rarity or it was at that time. I mean, unfortunately, is becoming more common. And uh, that's partly why I did decide to put it in the book. You know, there's a little bit of... Um, that community that I was in at that time was very protective of the shooting. Like we didn't really talk about it much. You know, it was in the media at the time that the trial was happening. But this is all pre-internet. Exactly. It's not the same. Exactly. And so, yeah. um, you don't really hear about it. And I had written an essay for salon about it in 2012, uh, that got quite a bit of attention, but it was hard because some of the people from that community had trouble with it. You know, they went to Facebook that day and there's the shooting and they didn't like it because they didn't want to think about the shooting that day. You know, it's a weird right. thing to decide to speak for your community. Right. And to, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, but through doing that, my friend Galen's father had contacted me and said he really enjoyed the piece. And that was, you know, really healing for me. I mean, I saw I had an email from him in my inbox. And I just started to sob because I felt so guilty that I was alive and his son was dead, you know, and that was even literally 20 years later. And, um, so I became involved in arranging a memorial at the school on the 20th anniversary, which happened in uh, 2012. We were driving up to school that day. Um, several of my old friends and I from New York city to Simon's rock in the Berkshires. And we hear on the radio that Sandy hook happened that day. Oh my God. So exactly 20 years later and so much worse, you know, and Sandy so hook is the worst thing ever. 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 I mean, it's just, you can't even, and and it was complicated. I actually just wrote a piece about this for medium.com. Like I felt so guilty because obviously it's, we're going to memorialize our dead 20 years later. We know time doesn't heal. I mean, it gets lessened, but you still feel those wounds. We think about these families just embarking on this horrible. And then I felt guilty. I'm like, well, Galen was 18 when he died. You know, I mean, these kids were like eight, you know, and then I'm like, you can't play that game. You just, you can't. Um, so that happened right before I started working on the book. And I was wondering, you know, is it my place to tell this story? Is my community that was there with me going to feel like I'm, um, you know, sensationalizing my book or I'm, you know, using it to get attention for the book. And I was like, you know what? I think, it's an important part of the story. It's definitely been an important part of my growth. And I think if anyone in our culture is trying to understand it and they can read this in the book and get a sense of what it's like and kind of from there look outwards to how we might try to impact some change on our culture, you know, then that's a, a good thing. Just, I want to just throw all the guns into a volcano. I know. Fuck it. I know it's terrible. And my, uh, 
Galen's dad, Gregory Gibson, he actually wrote this incredible book called Gone Boy, where he um, did what's called a walkabout, which is, I believe, from Maori culture, where you go on like a quest. And so after Galen was murdered, I did that on the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, (laughs) Brad Listy, he did hike the Appalachian Trail. We're not sure if he completed it, but he did hike. I was out there. A portion of it. I got Uh, and ticks. Yeah. So when people are curious about gun violence, um, I would always recommend this book because when his son was murdered at 18, uh, Greg just came undone. And so he wrote a book where he literally went and saw the type of gun that had been used. He learned about the loophole in the gun law that allowed it to happen. He corresponded with Wayne who had done the shooting. I mean, he looked at every angle of the crime. He talked to the administration at the school um, and he sort of tried to report on where we're at as a culture, you know, and find some answers. Unfortunately, you know, it's really difficult to come by answers because you want to know it's not going to happen again. And there's just, there's no way to, right. to not, promise. Well, not unless we come to our senses collectively. Yeah. yeah. And he said something really beautiful. He wrote a um, New York Times op-ed piece after Sandy Hook because uh, he and his wife were coming home from laying flowers on their son's grave when they heard uh, about Sandy Hook. And of course, yeah. they knew what those parents were going through, you know, right. better than anyone. And he said, you know... Uh, as long as we continue to make these choices culturally, uh, our children will continue to pay for the freedoms that we adults enjoy. Right. And that's the really sad part of it. Yeah. I don't understand guns. Mm-hmm. I don't understand people who want to have them. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I mean, if you, I mean, if you want to hunt to eat, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. But like for sport? And that's, that is the heartbreaking thing about this. I mean, like you asked me like how I felt about capital punishment and, you know, at the time that it happened, I wanted Wayne to die. Like I didn't care. I just was like, you shouldn't deserve to get out. You know, you, you took away not just these two lives, but the, the sense of safety that like hundreds of people had. And not to mention all the people that he injured. Exactly. Physically and and emotionally. And then, you know, the parents and then the cousins and the community, everyone and the the family of the shooter. I mean, everyone lost, you know, and I have heard, I don't know this for sure. I've heard this um, anecdotally that Wayne Lowe, who did the shooting has said, you know, if he hadn't had access to that gun the day that it happened. Of course not. Because he was about to go home for Christmas break. Yes. You know, he's 18. He's hormonal. It's like suicides. Yeah. You know, it's people have a bad day and then they do it and mm-hmm. then they don't get that. Mm-hmm. They don't get a second chance. But plenty of people like, you know, the gun jams or mm-hmm. somebody walks in and then, they, you know, 50 years later, right. um, they're still alive. And thank God, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, you know, just where's our wisdom mm-hmm. when it comes to guns? Where right. is our wisdom? Right. There's just such a... Um, backwards mindset mm. i know i could go on and on well i'm gonna tie a happy bow on the end Please do. <laughs> <laughs> before i start going off on a rant um well i think so the reason i tell all these stories in the book is because you know i kind of washed up in los angeles in my early 30s and as i said i was a mess i had had all this layer upon layer of trauma the trauma of my dad leaving, the trauma of the shooting. Perfect candidate to move to Los Angeles, yes. by the way. This is, we take people like that in. Exactly. <laughs> the lost souls, yes. the seekers, you either end up in a cult or end up on a reality show yeah. or both. Um, and I, I was in a lot of pain. I had done therapy. I had done a lot of things. I was like, am I an alcoholic? I stopped drinking for a while. I was like, that's not it. Um, I went to therapy. I was like, am I depressed? They're like, that's not it. You know? Um, but you were depressed. I was depressed. And but I, you weren't like, you know, can't get out of bed depressed. Well, I did have in, in 2009, 
I came very close to taking my own life. And then again in 2010, and I talk about that in the book. How? Uh, I had a plan where I was going to um, get a very nice hotel room and get a lot of pills because I knew that I had that type A personality where I could go to the doctor and say, oh, I'm just having trouble sleeping. You know, I've got these deadlines and I would be a very convincing candidate right. to get as much pills as I needed. And then probably like a nice bottle of bourbon and um, just do it. I was done. You know, well, and it was just your dad. It was all of it. I just I hurt all of the time. And every time something went wrong, it hurt more, you know, a breakup devastating. Like when my first boyfriend and I broke up in 2001, I did not have a boyfriend again for nine years. Well, that's that abandonment. Yeah. Right? I just, it's like proves everything bad you ever suspected about yourself. Well, that, I mean, but it's all tied to your dad too. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. wasn't there. I wasn't good enough. Right. Then you have a guy in your life and then he mm -hmm. leaves and it's happening right. to you again. I bet you like, you just couldn't, I, I can understand how it's like, it's emotionally intolerable. Yeah. It is. And so I, that's why I loved writing because I could do it myself. I could go off by myself and do it. It was very safe. I was like a workaholic, you know, even though I'm a, a rock journalist, it's very cool. I still took on too much work all of the time. I was always like, I'm on deadline. I'm on deadline. I, and that was where I hid out, you know, when I wasn't drinking, I was working. Or I used to say I was a workaholic with alcoholic tendencies. And so I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get it together. And I would meet people and they didn't get it. They're like, well, like you seem pretty smart. Like you're not hideous. Like you don't have like snakes growing out of your hair. You know what I mean? Like you can talk to people like you should have a pretty easy time of it. And I was like, I know, but I just, I don't. And I was reading like Eckhart Tolle. I was like reading all the books. I was doing all the things. I did develop a meditation practice. You know, I got um, in doc, I don't know what the right word would be. Like I've got brought into transcendental meditation. I was trying everything. Did you pay like the three K to do that? Yeah, I didn't pay the three K, but I did pay something, something, whatever yeah. it is. It's yeah. expensive. And I, I, I believed in that. I mean, I, I thought I, I wanted something, you know, and right. I was disappointed every time. No, you're not an alcoholic. No, you're not depressed. You know, I was like, what is it then? And what is it? I really think it's, it's ironic, but in 2011, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer right after one of my best friends was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. So I have a friend of mine who's in her late thirties with a young uh, daughter uh, who's given just a few years to live. Uh, I have my dad who's in at that point in his mid sixties, uh, who has very early stage prostate cancer, treatable, He's treatable, given a variety of options. He decides not to treat it and to uh, take herbs instead. Oh God. And he started using it to manipulate me. The way I found out he had cancer was I said, um, dad, I can't have this codependent relationship with you. Like I need us to have a healthier relationship. This isn't working for me anymore. And he said, well, I have cancer. Literally. That was his response. And I said, you don't have cancer. I might have cancer. You haven't gotten the test back. All of us could have cancer. He had been tested, oh but he God. hadn't gotten the results back yet. And he knew about my friend with the terminal cancer and he still was playing the cancer card and he did have cancer in fact. And it was so inappropriate to me. Yeah. And I finally stood up to him and I was like, you know what? I say this with a lot of love, dad, but we've done our work. We've had our conversations. We've had our apologies. You know, I love you. I forgive you. You can die. We're done. You know, if you need to die, you can do it. And there was a point where he, he did ask me for some money to buy herbs he found on the internet from my book advance the book I was writing about how he had messed me up. And I said, no. And it was 
hard. I felt like a monster to say no to my dad with cancer, but his behavior had gone so beyond what would be appropriate for a parent, maybe even for a friend, you know, and I, it finally made me stand up for myself. And when I said no to my dad, I felt invincible because my whole life I could always have the ground yanked out from me. Like there's always a chance my dad was going to come back or not come back. And it was just going to devastate me or a boyfriend was going to leave, or I wasn't going to get an assignment or something. And I finally was like, I can actually take care of myself. And like, yeah, I don't need, Hmm. yeah. And I'm not going to let someone hurt me. You know, I, I will say no, like I matter more than my dad. And you know, that didn't happen until I was 35 years old and it really needed to happen. So have you talked to him since then? Mm-hmm. And we, and we actually have a great relationship, you know, that I mean, it was actually probably good for him. It was. It, to, please tell me he's getting proper treatment and mm-hmm. not just, just the herbs. Just the herbs. Okay. I mean, I'm a, na- I mean, I'm mm-hmm. all about the naturalism, mm-hmm. but you got cancer. Yeah. You're taking herbs. You never told your dad, like, maybe you should try some. No, I did. I did. And that was partly why I even said no to giving him the money because, you know, I said, well, I said a thousand dollars, dad, that's kind of a lot of money. And, you know, I'm a writer. Like I do have a thousand dollars in the bank right now, but that's not normal. You know, that's because I sold a book. <laughs> yeah. It does not happen every day. Um, I said, what happens after these herbs? You know, what happens after a thousand dollars of herbs, which I believe was three months worth of herbs. And he said, well, the cancer will be gone. You think he, you know, is he still gambling? Oh man. And he had, he, that only came out very recently, maybe within the past six months where he said, well, you know, before when I said I was okay, I wasn't really because I was still gambling, but now I'm really okay. Like I've really got it together now. Uh And so I can see all of this now. And you know, he's 69 and my heart breaks for him a little bit because, um, it took me a really long time. I'm certainly not a hundred percent together now, but I'm, Who is? But I'm 39, and I've answered some questions that plagued me my whole life. You, you know, looked at it. Yeah, that's what doing. That's what doing a book is. Yeah, one way or another. Yeah, you know, it's like that's like that. Flan- I think it's a Flannery O'Connor quote where it's like you know writing, and I think she's specifically talking mm-hmm. about writing fiction. But mm-hmm. I think the same applies for memoir and nonfiction, uh, especially of a personal strain. It's like people say writing is like trying to escape reality mm-hmm. when it's like the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. I you know. So you're taking a long look at yourself. You're mm-hmm. taking a long look at your dad. You're forcing yourself to sort of sit there. Mm-hmm. It's not too dissimilar from meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully it brings you some uh, some perspective and some mm-hmm. healing. You mm-hmm. feel, I mean, because, you know, it's overdone. People always talk about catharsis, especially in the context of memoir. But mm-hmm. do you feel like you've, was it a cathartic experience? Do you feel like you've, uh, I don't know, gotten past or summited some sort of... Uh, mountain that's i'm, I'm screwing up the mountain was it healing yeah. in, in a kind of permanent yeah. way it like, was and you know i'm actually friends with my publisher um i've done a lot of ghostwriting for her so uh when she gave me this opportunity she knew it was a big deal for me and i've said to her you know it changed my life no matter what happens with the book uh who reads it you know how well it does it changed my life because all of these things were there. I thought I was addressing them, but anytime it got too hard, I checked out. You know, I got another deadline. I had a crush on someone unavailable. You know, I went to the bar. And when I was writing the book, I couldn't check out. Every time it was hard, I just dug deeper. Write another book. 
Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, and then like the suicidal stuff? Mm-hmm. Like that was that was the boyfriend broke up with you. Was that what instigated, or just no, a culmination? It was a culmination. I mean, I was having some health issues at the time, and I wasn't seeing a therapist. I was really kind of, um, I guess, being a little bit like my dad. You know, I was just um, taking herbs. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting because. Um, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even talk about this except for the fact that I know you do meditate as well. And so you're probably not going to laugh me out of here, but I had come very close to preparing to kill myself. Like it was, I hadn't told anyone it was a secret. It was like a place I went to every day in my mind. Like I'm going to do this. I was like gearing up for it. And, um, I didn't tell anyone cause I didn't want them to stop me. And I was sitting in this house in Mount Washington where I was, um, dog sitting it was really hot. It was like July. It was just like no air conditioning, like brutal. And out of nowhere, I like literally had a vision. I wasn't meditating at the time. I just was sitting there really depressed. And the vision was of me and I was happy. Like it was like a sense vision. Like I could feel myself in it. I was just driving my car in Los Angeles somewhere. I looked great. I just felt great. And I could tell it hadn't happened yet. But I knew it was inside of me. Uh And I was like, that girl or that woman is inside of me. And if I can just get to her, like if I can just survive long enough to get to her, I'm going to be okay. And I really feel like that was a gift from the universe. I don't know where it came from. It was that clear. It was that clear. Like even though I meditate, I don't have a, a clear doctrine or like a clear belief system so I have no idea where it came from, but it was so tangible that I felt this inc- heat stroke. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. I think it might have really, like short circuited my brain. I think a lot of religious happenings <laughs> occur like in India under those conditions. Sure, yeah, they're in but India. I literally one hundred twenty degrees. I was so grateful, and also I for the first moment in like months, I didn't feel awful. You felt grateful. I felt grateful, and I literally like that day called my mom and my stepdad and I said, look, I have to tell you something like I've been very close to taking my life and I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I want you guys to know, like, I'm not going to do it. I might need some help. Like I was having a lot of financial problems at that point. Like everything was just sort of spiraling. And that was the first time where I was like, you know, I I need some help. That's a big moment. It was a huge moment. You admit it to somebody. I admit it. And of course they were like terrified and were like, you should come home. And I I didn't ultimately go home at that moment. Come back to the land. Yeah, totally. It's all okay. We'll make some lentil soup. But it was really sweet. And I told my dad and he said, you know, you have to promise me if you ever feel that way again, that you'll tell someone, you know, and that's when you kind of come back from the precipice. And so, um, plus it's like, you know, I know that sometimes depressed uh, states can linger. Mm hmm. But one of the things about it is that, uh, you know, emotions come and go mm-hmm. like storm clouds, mm-hmm. you know, and if you, if you wait long enough, mm-hmm. it's going to go away mm-hmm. just like happiness goes away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably. It's not, nothing sticks. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, and they're, they're ephemeral and, uh, that's the nature of things. Mm-hmm. And it's silly to take your own life based on one emotion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to happen. Right. Don't do that. No, I never would have written a book. Right. <laughs> so are you going to uh, keep writing books? I know you're going to keep ghost writing to pay yes. the bills in the yes. short term, but I mean, are you going to work on another book of your own? Yeah. It was really heartbreaking and beautiful. Around the time I sold this memoir, I had finished my third novel. I've never published a novel. And I gave it to my publisher who had acquired my memoir, and she really didn't like it. My agent really didn't like it. 
Um, and she said to me, my publisher said to me, you know, Sarah, I've only known you a few years and I've seen you grow so much in that time. And she said, I don't think this is the first novel you want published. She's like, I think it's really still back the in your old way of being and thinking. And she's like, I think this memoir is going to change you so much. And she's like, just give it a chance to be what it is. And she's like, I'm not talking about whether or not it's a success. I'm talking about how you feel. And she's like, and write something out of that space that comes next. And she's like, I think that will be your first novel. And, um, you know, I think I, I said a little bit kind of jokingly throughout this interview, like I used to be a terrible workaholic. That was kind of my worst vice was my perfectionism. And that was where I hit out was in writing. You know, I've written three novels, like multiple screenplays, tons of essays and short stories, so much of it unpublished. And um, I'm trying to write less and have it matter more. And so that's my goal is I haven't been writing any fiction recently. And once the book is done, I'm going to Europe for three weeks with my boyfriend. All right. Yeah. And I'm just going to live and like be reminded of like the points in the universe beyond my own navel. (laughs) And uh, how much more civilized Europe is than the United States. Exactly. (laughs) Eat some great croissants. Oh my God. And then love socialism. Exactly. And then come home and, um, and try to write something out of like this new place. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I congratulate you. I'm really happy for Thank you. Thank you. It's great that you uh, you did all this. Uh, I'm glad you're on better footing, mm-hmm. and I just wish you well with whatever comes Thank next. Thank you. I appreciate it. You too. Okay, guys. There you go. That is Sarah Tomlinson. Her memoir is called Good Girl, and it is available now from Gallery Books. You can find Sarah online at sarahtomlinson.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. And uh, you can find her on Twitter at Duchess of Rock. That's her handle, Duchess of Rock. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Hey, don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. It's free. You can get the app at your favorite app store. Get it on your device. The most recent 50 episodes of the podcast will then be waiting for you free. You get 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to uh, stream older episodes, get access to the uh, you know to the archives. Get access to every episode. Then you sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. 75 cents a month. It's a great way to support the show. Hey, do you need some new earbuds or headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Get some new uh, earbuds or headphones or both. I don't mean to sound like too much of a uh, neurotic when it comes to house guests. I have house guests. People can come stay with me. I'm a nice person. It's more about me staying with you. But, like, who are these people who are just like, yeah, I'll come out for a couple weeks. I have a hard time processing that. You know what I'm saying? I have a hard time understanding how anyone could think that that's okay. How could you not feel bad about yourself? I'm just going to come sleep on your couch for three weeks. You don't mind, do you? You better be good friend. You better be family. Even if you're family, though. (laughs) I don't know what kind of family you have. Please remember that Kierkegaard died at 42 and that Jean Cocteau was addicted to opium. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks to Sarah Tomlinson for being such a good guest. 
Go get her book. Go get Good Girl. Get that memoir. Buy it right now. Thanks to Gallery Books. My poor daughter. Their big pink cast. All the way up above the elbow, too. It's a big cast. It's not like it was a compound fracture. It's just like right at the elbow. So you gotta do the cast all the way up. Fragile human beings. All of us. I feel bad. You know, it's like we should have just taken her straight to the doctor to get x-rayed. The arm was hanging. It was like dangling at her side. Like just like limp. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. She, she's being dramatic. What kind of dick am I? So here's the deal to uh, parents or prospective parents. If your kid ever says like, oh, I, I hurt my arm. If the arm is dangling at their side and is immobile... That means you might want to get an x-ray. It's the dangling. And that's the truth, for real. Like, when we uh, called the doctor, we called the pediatrician. My wife did. Uh, Carrie. The doctor was like, uh, is the arm dangling? Is it just dangling there? Yes, it is. Then you need to take her to an orthopedic and have an x-ray. You live and learn. But now we're like, God, like last summer she hurt her wrist and she was kind of favoring it for a couple weeks. She break her wrist? <laughs> her child breaking bones and we have no idea? I don't know. And this door thing, it's got to end. I'm in a garage. Don't shut the door. Don't shut the door.